Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're talking again about important issues in the country and in our state of Maine. And this week, we're talking about a bill that a group of us here in the Senate introduced a couple of weeks ago called the Go Safe Act. And it's an attempt to limit the lethality of assault weapons that are used in virtually all of the mass shootings in this country. Amazingly and tragically and sadly, we've had over 600 shootings in in America this year that involve more than four deaths or wounding of people. And that's just an unacceptable problem. And of course, the tragedy that we had in Lewiston just underlines the nature of the problem and really brought it home to many of us in Maine. My first guest to talk about the bill is one of our co-sponsors, Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona. Senator Kelly is a longtime veteran of the Navy, a jet pilot, an astronaut, one of the few people in the Senate that I think has ever probably broken the sound barrier. And uh, it's wonderful to have him with us. And Mark, before we start talking about the bill, I noticed looking at your background that both of your parents were police officers. So you, you know something about law enforcement as well. Yes, Angus. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I, I just talked to Senator Durbin at this last vote. I told him I was coming on your podcast and he said he's personally hurt for never having been invited ah. to come on. So you'll have to invite him. So thank you for having me on as a guest. Yeah, my uh, parents, my mom and dad were both police officers, my dad for about 25 years, my mom for about a decade until she she got injured. She was one of the first female police officers in northern New Jersey and and certainly the first one in our hometown. I have my uh, dad's police jacket framed uh, in my office here in D.C. Then you went to, I think, the Merchant Marine Academy, is that correct? And then on into the Navy and I, somewhere I saw you have over 5,000 hours uh, in a jet airplane. That's, that's, that's a lot of time. And, and you flew combat missions as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. I graduated in 1986, and then I went straight to Pensacola to start flight school for the Navy. And uh, my first operational tour was off of the USS Midway, stationed in Japan. And then in 1991... Uh, I flew in Operation Desert Storm, flew 39 combat missions over Iraq and Kuwait, mostly strikes into uh, southern Iraq, Kuwait, even out in the desert, sunk two ships, took out a bridge, you know, some buildings, tanks, you know, kind of the whole whole range of stuff you would expect from an, a, an attack airplane. But yeah, I've got about five or 6,000 flight hours in over 50 different types of airplanes. Well, somebody told me, I had an old friend in Maine who was a Navy pilot. He said, landing on a carrier at night is about the scariest thing that you can do. Did you have that experience? Um, I almost got shot down a couple times. I had a missile, well, I said more than a couple times, but I had a, on my first combat mission, I had an SA-6 blow up next to my airplane. You think the, you know, the the missile coming at your airplane's a, a big deal and it, it really gets your attention. You know what's worse than the first missile? It's the second one uh, <laughs> right after it. And it's a rather intimidating experience. And, you know, for folks that haven't been shot at, you know, I've been I've been shot at by anti-aircraft artillery fire, a lot of it by missiles, not really what you expect. And, and that'll kind of lead into our next discussion. 
But landing on the aircraft carrier at night is one of the hardest things to do in aviation. Um, I, I don't think I ever launched off the front of the ship uh, and felt comfortable about having to come back and land at night. And it's challenging. And I, I would put it um, up there with landing the space shuttle after a couple of weeks in space as far as a you know, high risk activity that's uh, rather complicated, and and the, and the space stuff is complicated more for. So you reasons. you you were a pilot of the space shuttle and and spent a fair amount of time in space after your career in the Navy. Yeah, I uh, became an astronaut in 1996. I flew my first space flight in 2001. I was the pilot twice, and then I was the commander of the space shuttle twice. I was the commander of the last flight of space shuttle Endeavor. So it was my last flight, my fourth flight. It was Endeavor's 25th, was Endeavor's last flight as well. And uh, we completed on that flight the International Space Station. I delivered the last major piece of uh, U.S. hardware, uh, a physics experiment, about 15,000 pounds, sits outside of the space station. It's called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. And it's looking for dark matter, dark energy, antimatter in the universe. It's really an antimatter detector, a particle detector. Well, amazing experience. And now the U.S. Senate. Yeah, which is a whole different kind. I imagine you talk about it on your podcast, but you know, I've been here for three years. And one of my early observations was that if NASA had the rules of the United States Senate, the rocket ship would never leave the launch pad. No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't be. We wouldn't have been to the moon. That's for sure. Uh, well, well, listen, uh, you signed on. You were one of our first original co-sponsors, along with Martin Heinrich and uh, Michael Bennett, to the GoSafeAct. And uh, you had not sponsored a, a bill involving assault weapons in the past. And talk to me about the bill, why you signed on, and, and what your hopes are that we're going to be able to accomplish here. Well, I think this legislation you know, differs from what we think of as a traditional assault weapons ban. You know, in that it really gets at not what the gun looks like and what people call it, but how it actually operates. And a gas-operated semi-automatic rifle that has a detachable high-capacity magazine, in my view, is, is a weapon that's uh, very important for soldiers, special forces, for combat operations, but not a, a, a weapon that, you know, somebody can easily buy. The one feature, one part of this legislation that I really liked is that not only does it prohibit the original sale of these weapons, uh, these gas-operated semi-automatic rifles with a high-capacity magazine, but it also uh, prohibits the transfer for people that already own them. But so, importantly, it doesn't take them away. There's no confiscation. I want to be clear correct. about that. You know, I get calls and, and saying you're going to take away. But what it says is you can transfer it to a member of your immediate family. That's fine. You can keep it. You can use it. But if you decide to sell it, it's a buyback. Yeah, you can't sell it to a stranger. And that I think that's a key piece of this, that uh, these, you know, these guns are more deadly than weapons that have a much higher standard to buy, like fully automatic weapons. You know, some fully automatic weapons like a Tommy gun, for instance, you know, used in primarily in the 1930s, 1920s and 30s, an AR-15, 
uh, with a high capacity magazine is a much more deadly rifle. I'm glad you said that because what we try to do in this bill is demonstrate and, and put these weapons with these detachable magazines, and we'll talk about that in a minute, in the same category as Tommy guns, fully automatic machine guns, sawed off shotguns, which have been heavily regulated, if not banned, since for almost 100 years. And the Supreme Court has recognized that as a carve out of the Second Amendment. Justice Scalia, of course, famously said that it's not absolute. Uh, and one of the limitations is especially dangerous weapons. And I think, as you just said, these these weapons with that high capacity detachable magazine are as dangerous as the weapons that were controlled. Uh, and everybody accepted that control 100 years ago. Yeah. And you're right. You know, uh, Justice Scalia said in the in the Heller decision that the government has a right to regulate this stuff. And when you see, you know, mass shooting after mass shooting in our country and the, the numbers just keep going up, we have to do something. Well, this year, believe it or not, I just saw the numbers lately. There have been something like over 630 shootings in this country where four or more people were either killed or wounded right. uh, at one time. I mean, that's two a day. I just, I told somebody today, I just don't see how we can ignore this. We can't. And, you know, I'm a gun owner. I'm a supporter, strong supporter of the Second Amendment. feel people have the right to own a firearm to defend themselves, or if they're a hunter or a target shooter or a collector. But having, you know, these deadliest, you know, rifles just so easily accessible and where folks can get them quickly and often individuals that have mental health issues or you know felons domestic abusers it just doesn't make any sense and when you know we, we're currently living you know in a country that has a high uh, number of these weapons and that number is increasing and the number of mass shootings are increasing and just the overall level of violence you know now today it's more likely for a kid to die of gun violence a gunshot wound than to die from any other cause that's an appalling figure and i can tell you from i, I i'm getting calls and letters at my office and of course many of them are from second amendment advocates who are very much opposed to this but one of the highest groups are moms who are very nervous about sending their kids to school we had this awful case in Maine about a month and a half ago where everybody thought that the shooter was, was loose for two days. Uh, the schools in my hometown were closed. And it's not something, you know, our parents had to think about was, do you send your kids to school and they're going to have an active shooter drill? That's part of what's driving this. Yeah, Angus, I have a two-year-old granddaughter in Tucson. And she's already been through her first real school lockdown, not a drill. And she goes to preschool, daycare, but it's 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 also it's like a pre-K through eighth grade. And they had to have a lockdown because of a shooting uh, that was going on uh, nearby at the University of Arizona campus. That's uh, pretty close by. Now, she's not going to remember this because of her age, but there are children growing up today that have experienced this multiple times and then the active shooter drills and it's uh, it's really having an effect on them and it's not good well the real heart of our bill is the high capacity detachable magazine what the bill basically says is you can have a magazine in the weapon maximum of 10 bullets but you can't have a magazine that can have 10 15 20 100 bullets 
that detaches that you can easily pull off and put back on again. And the shooter in Lewiston, Maine, where we had our tragedy, as I say, about a month and a half ago, I'm told had two detachable magazines duct taped together so that when he was finished with one, he could just flip it over in a second and plug it back in. And from what law enforcement tells me, the moment of reloading is an opportunity to to stop these tragedies. And so that's really what we're focused on here is those high capacity detachable magazines that make it just so easy to keep firing in these situations. Yeah, what happened in, uh, and we didn't mention this yet, but this issue is very personal to me. My wife, Gabby Giffords, in January of 2011, so it's coming up on 13 years ago when she was a member of Congress, as you know, represented uh, the area in, in and around Tucson, Arizona. She was at a Safeway grocery store meeting with her constituents uh, on what she called a Congress on your corner event. And a young guy shows up with a nine millimeter handgun, but it had a 32 or 33 round magazine in it very high capacity magazine for a nine millimeter Glock. You know, they can have magazines, usually about a 17 round magazine, pretty high as well. But this magazine had over 30 rounds. He fired every round in about 15 seconds. First one hit my wife, Gabby, in the head, gave her a significant traumatic brain injury, nearly killed her. Most people don't survive that kind of gunshot wound to the head. He was about four or five feet away, wow. right in the middle of the left side of her head. And then he fired every bullet in 15 seconds. And then he went to reload to put the other magazine in the gun. And while he was reloading, he dropped it. And when he dropped it, a, a woman named, uh, who had been, uh, since we've become very close with, named Patricia Mache, who happened to be there, even with all this carnage, had the presence of mind to go right at the magazine. She grabbed it off the ground. And that allowed some time for two other individuals to tackle them. Now, if that magazine was a 17-round magazine or a 10-round magazine, you know, maybe six people would not have been killed and 13 injured. That number would have been fewer. So the magazine size, clearly, as you, you articulated, the magazine size matters. It helps you to shoot a lot of people in a short period of time. And I think it's important for folks to remember that you know, these magazines aren't designed for hunting. You know, often they're prohibited. And what our legislation is going to do is it's going to limit the magazine capacity for weapons, and it's going to keep them out of the wrong hands, and it's going to absolutely save lives. Well, saving lives is really what it's all about, and you're exactly right. And ironically, you mentioned hunting. In Maine, uh, if you go hunting for deer, you're only allowed to have six bullets in your gun, one in the chamber and five in a magazine. And that's been the law in our state for a long time, and everybody lives by it. And really what we're saying is essentially, let's do for people what we do for deer. Right. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really the same, the same concept. And that's the heart of it. Now, the other thing that, that we're limiting in, in our bill are something called bump stocks, which 
convert a semi-automatic, which means you have to pull the trigger each time to fire a bullet, into what amounts to a Tommy gun, a, a fully automatic. And clearly, I think in Las Vegas, a bump stock is what enabled that guy to kill 40 or 50 people. And so that's part of our bill as well. And Angus, Inger, uh, I think it was over 300. I mean, I mean, just the, the, the level of carnage at that mass shooting was something we've never seen before. And um, yeah, for folks that don't understand our bump stock works, it's basically bouncing off your, your shoulder as you hold the trigger down. So it allows you to, to operate the trigger multiple times very quickly. So it turns a semi-automatic weapon into sort of a fully automatic weapon. You get that rapid rate of fire. And again, it has no use for even target shooting or hunting or even protecting yourself. I mean, think about this for a second. The United States military, they got away from the fully automatic capability of M16s and M4s and other rifles because they found that in the combat scenario we wanted, it, it was a waste of ammunition. And we wanted soldiers to, in general, to be either firing a single round or a three-round burst. So even the military doesn't really use them anymore. But it, what it does, if you're shooting at a big crowd of people, like we saw in Vegas, it allows you to get a lot of rounds off in a short period of time. And it really has no you know, civilian purpose. Well, and to, to take it back to the, to the law that's been around for 100 years, it, it basically just says you can't end run the regulation of, of fully automatic machine gun type weapons by adding a device uh, to the weapon that you have. And I, I want to go back. I think it's important because Maine is a Second Amendment state. We've, we've got one of the highest rates of gun ownership in the country. And I've been, you know, I've worked with hunters and friends in Maine for, for many years, I have a couple of kids that are, uh, that are gun owners that, that are hunters. But we're not talking about a taking guns away from anybody. We're really talking about manufacture and sale uh, of these things. Uh, but we're also talking about weapons that that are especially dangerous, that really fit back into that category from from a hundred years ago. And and as you mentioned, Justice Scalia, probably one of the most conservative and pro-gun guys on the Supreme Court, he said on page fifty-four of the opinion, I've gone back and read it a dozen times that. Uh, the Second Amendment is not unlimited. It doesn't mean you can carry any gun whatsoever, any place whatsoever, for whatever purpose. And and this is a narrowly drafted bill, and we're trying to basically, as you said, save lives, but still stay within the constitutional bounds of the Second Amendment. And also protect the rights of responsible gun owners at the same time. You know, people who want, you know, firearms to protect their family, I get that. I'm a gun owner. I, you know, have you know, I don't know, 15, you know, different firearms, including a hunting rifle, mostly handguns. The you know, first gun I got was the one I wound up flying in combat with that my dad got me when I got my wings in the Navy in Texas in 1987. And I've been a gun owner my entire life. My wife's a gun owner. These are common sense changes to our laws that I think most Americans want. You know, moms who send their kids off to school every day they want to see some action from the federal government on this. 
we just can't continue to go down this road of mass shooting after mass shooting and then say after each one of these things happen you know thoughts and prayers and not do anything about it it's time um, for action that's right and we've got some of our republican colleagues who are taking a serious look at the bill and uh, hopefully it won't take too many more tragedies to get the congress generally moving in this direction i have to say before leaving i've i've, I've met your wife gabby and she's one of the most uh, courageous and strong people that i think i've ever met and uh the fact that you're with us on this bill uh, really means a lot. It 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 uh, it speaks to uh, the fact that you think this is a important and will save lives, and b uh, common sense, and c does meet uh, the constitutional challenge. We certainly tried to 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 work it that way. So, Senator Mark Kelly, great to have you with us on the podcast, and particularly great to have you with us on on this bill and. We're going to keep working at it. And your experience, as I'm sure as mine is around here, is that you never know when the stars will align and it'll be time to, to get something done. And, and we hope that this will be a place we can start. Well, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, Angus. Uh, let's get this done. And we've got some co-sponsors already where, you know, we, we need a few more and maybe we can get this across the finish line. Hey, thank you very much, and uh, we'll continue to work together. And now we're going to turn on this program to an interview with a 40-year law enforcement veteran in Maine who's going to talk about how it goes. So, Senator Kelly, thanks for being with us. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and today we're talking about gun safety and gun safety not only across the United States, but in Maine. And I wanted to have a conversation with somebody with deep experience in law enforcement. And one of those people in Maine is Noel March, who was the U.S. Marshal, which works with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the chief federal law enforcement person in Maine. And Noel, let's begin with your history, your background in law enforcement. Uh, give me the resume up to uh, recent times. Well, thank you for having me here, Angus. And I'll give you the elevator resume in the interest of time because it's been a 40-year career in public service, in law enforcement. And I've worked in the local, county, state, as you mentioned, the federal level. So I have this uh, really a sampling of the different dimensions of protection in our state. Most of my career has been here in Maine. And I just have to say that um, the best way I can describe it is I've been in law enforcement, in, in drug enforcement, I've been uh, in leadership roles, I've overseen some corrections programs and rehabilitation. So it's it's been 23 flavors, really. And it is. It's a complex, uh, I often say it's uh, the spokes of a wheel, that uh, public safety and public protection, which our government and our, frankly, our community members each share responsibility for. And it's been a pleasure for me to be the uh, having been the United States Marshal. But prior to that, I was the police chief for the University of Maine, Go Blue. Uh, I had been the chief deputy sheriff for two of our counties, the uh, the smallest, uh, Knox County, and the largest, Cumberland County. And then prior to that in Maine, the Thomaston Police Department. And prior to that, uh, the Meriden, Connecticut Police Department. I'm a native of Connecticut. I've been a summer kid here for many years, and I got out of Dodge in 1983, moved to Maine, and I haven't looked back since. Maybe I was a player for 40 years. I'm now a coach. I'm a member of the Faculty of Criminal Justice for the University of Maine at Augusta, and I direct the Maine Community Policing Institute. 
Well, I, I can't imagine anyone with deeper experience and knowledge. And I want to take you back uh, about a month to uh, the, the tragedy in Lewiston. What, what was your immediate reaction when you heard about that? Like so many, I think um, the reaction was similar in that it was an event, of course, that shocks the conscience of not just those directly impacted, the victims and their families, as well as the first responders who have to immediately intervene and try to make sense of and provide some safety to a horrific, horrific scene and to continue to provide that for a very frightened community, a statewide community for the next seemingly two days. But my reaction was, um, well, I don't, don't want to sound cavalier, but it became our turn in the barrel. And that is something that I believe the most Mainers, like so many people who live in very safe and often rural states, believe it cannot happen here. Nothing that horrific would happen here. And yet that uh, horror visited our doorstep. To make that point, one of the ironies and tragedies of this of this situation was that on the Monday before the Wednesday night attack, the FBI said that Maine was the safest state in America. And as you know, we have a very high level of gun ownership as a percentage, but one of the lowest percentages of gun crimes. And that's why I've told my friends down here why, why this was such a, a shock, uh, because it's just out of character for Maine and the, the fact that we've got a, you know, thousands of gun-owning, law-abiding citizens. And it just, it, just, uh, it just hit us very hard. I think it's important to point out, uh, Senator, that Maine continues to be a very safe state. That, that hasn't changed. This aberration, we often make the analogy of you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to lose your life in this horrific way to firearm violence. That number is changing, though, unfortunately, as we see violence spiking and homicide, those the crimes of violence increasing. While nationally, crime categories are largely down, but we do have these spikes across the country. I'll reference, you know, I work for the universities, uh, so we often look at U.S. news and world reports, as do parents and students, and, and we're looking for the best scholarship, the best research school, the best athletics. U.S. News and World Reports for years has also listed their top states to retire, best cities for young people. Well, five years ago, they began a new list of the safest through least safe states in America. And the metrics that go into that are everything from recidivism to nature of offenses that are, occur to violence uh, or crimes solved. It's, it's a complicated formula, but for the past five years, and including today, U.S. News and World Reports lists Maine as the safest state of all 50. And that continues to be the case, Senator. So I think it's important to emphasize that we haven't suddenly all, you know, gone to heck in a handbasket in our state, but we do have work to do. And this case, to me, the Lewiston case points up the, a kind of three-part basis of, of these horrendous acts. The first is mental health. It's become clear from what we've learned that this fellow had some pretty serious mental health problems. In fact, he'd been institutionalized. And you know, people say, well, we got to do something about mental health. And the absolute, that's absolutely true. As you know, from being in the sheriff's office, for example, we have woefully inadequate behavioral health capacity. And I say capacity because it's not necessarily a function of how much money we have, but there just aren't the people 
the workforce to provide the mental health, the counseling that's that's really called for. And this is a nationwide problem, but it's also a problem in Maine. I'm sure you've seen it in the Cumberland County Jail. We are woefully underfunded, under-resourced, and under-networked. I'll say that way as well, because violence and crime are a public health issue. When you look at it in that manner, that it's a multifaceted, interdisciplinary approach that is needed. And of course, mental health is one of those important partners. I mean, full on. And now we're finally beginning to see embedded and uh, strategically aligned mental health services for the uh, unhoused, for substance use disorder, and on and on, as well as family and youth uh, services in a way that we haven't before, but we're not nearly there yet. And you are correct. Our county jails have been default mental health intake centers for lack of any other resource available in the community or at that time. And that needs addressing. By gosh, you know, we try to rationalize the irrational and we chase our tails trying to understand how can this happen? Let me just say this. There have been so many successful interventions where horrific violence, as we saw in Lewiston, has not been the sad result. There have been success stories after success story that we just don't read about on the front page. We have to remember that. So we need to continue to water the green grass of those programs, partnerships, and resources that are working and see where the funding priorities are. And by all means, mental health with public service is absolutely a critical part of that. Now, the the second piece of what happened in Lewiston was a, a failure to connect the dots. And I know there are a lot of people talking about this and a lot of research being done. Susan Collins and I have written to the Army about why didn't they provide a more substantial warning. And I think I think that's a gap that we really have to deal with is having the warnings find themselves in the right places, get to the right ears so that something in prevention can be done. And, and I think this was a case that pointed that up. Our systems are siloed and they have been by design. Angus, there are 18,806 police departments in the United States. That's just municipal town city police. And that's according to the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I just concluded my three-year term on the board of directors for that uh, association. We do this work and watch the landscape very closely. And we're very siloed in that there's two things happening in my experience. One is that It is difficult to connect all those dots when you have so many different jurisdictions and entities, systems of interoperable communications. And so there's that piece. But there's also the reluctance to incarcerate for mental health. And it's not against the law to be mentally ill or to suffer from mental illness. It's it's like any diabetes, like any other um, illness. And there are even mandatory reporters that are, I have found, have been reluctant to sign that commitment paper or to make that call for fear of litigation, for fear of stigmatizing and causing the situation to become worse. In this case, there appears to be, and I don't want to prejudge this because I know the governor has a commission and there's a lot of work going on on this, but, and and as I mentioned, Susan and I are trying to get the inspector general of the army to look into it, but but it appears that there this fellow left a lot of breadcrumbs that weren't that weren't picked up. There were warnings and and it just never got to the right place. So that's number two. But the third piece is the weapon itself. And uh, that's what I want to talk about. As you know, uh, Martin Heinrich, a senator from New Mexico, who by the way is a is a a, a serious hunter. Uh, he and his kids hunt together. He's <laughs> I was in his office the other day. 
his office is full of antlers. Uh, seriously, I, I never saw so many antlers in my life, a, a big game that, that he hunts. So he, he knows a lot about guns. He's a serious hunter. And then our other two co-sponsors are Mark Kelly, who uh, I just talked to, a senator from Arizona. And of course, his wife, Gabby Giffords, is the one that was badly wounded in a, in a senseless attack in, in, in Arizona. And then my friend, Michael Bennett, who's a senator from Colorado. So uh, interestingly, Kelly and Heinrich and I have never supported the prior assault weapons ban, but we, because we felt it was based too much on the appearance of the weapon rather than how it actually operated. So our bill is focused on what makes this weapon so dangerous. Have you, have you taken a look at what we're proposing? I have, Senator. I've, I've looked at the uh, proposed measure, the Go Safe Act, and it's a new approach. It's looking at the mechanics of the tool. And to reduce two things, one, the capacity of the weapon such that we can't, in my view, we shouldn't have unlimited capacity weapons, but to look at the capacity of the weapon and then the speed of reloading. And that's a mechanics issue that really does matter in the sort of the tactical aspect of protection and firearms, ballistic science. That's exactly what we were focusing on. And, and again, to bring it back to Lewiston, I'm told that this fellow had two detachable high-capacity magazines duct taped together so that when he ran through one, he could easily, within a second or two, flip it over and stick it back in. Our bill would prohibit detachable magazines. Any, the magazine limited to 10 bullets would have to be in the gun and no ability to, to do that fast reloading, which, as you say, is that's a moment of potential safety when the shooter can either be disarmed or people can escape. In fact, in Lewiston, two guys were killed charging him, trying to take him down, and he killed them both. If it had been through it at that moment of reloading, a significant part of the tragedy might have been prevented. It's difficult to speculate, but I do agree. And as long as it's lawful, constitutional, and moves the needle towards safety, no one should oppose this sort of measure. Not that there will be those who will philosophically, but I don't believe constitutionally there is a, there's an obstacle to, from that angle, from this sort of measure uh, going forward. Well, I, I think we, it, it fits within a category. First, I should say that Justice Scalia, one of the very conservative judges, a pro-gun, he wrote the famous Heller decision that established a, a personal right under the Second Amendment. But even in that decision, on page 54, he has a paragraph where he says the Second Amendment is not unlimited. That's a direct quote. Mm -hmm. And he said it doesn't mean that you can carry any weapon whatsoever, any place whatsoever, for any purpose whatsoever. And there has consistently been a recognized carve-out for what are identified as unusual and, and especially dangerous weapons. For example, machine guns. And sawed-off shotguns have been heavily regulated, essentially banned since the 30s for almost 100 years. And really, that's, that's what we're talking about here. We're not, by the way, I should have said at the beginning, we're not talking about taking anybody's gun away. Right. So this isn't confiscation. What we're talking about basically is limiting magazine size. And we do ban these bump stocks that turn a rifle where you have to pull the trigger each time to what amounts to a machine gun. And what we're really focused on is the lethality of the weapon, not what it looks like. As technology develops and we learn from our lived experience, all too often the hard way, government has a duty to protect the public. 
And the test is often what jurists, you mentioned uh, Justice Scalia, uh, what jurists referred to as a balancing of interests. That which best serves the greater public good and the public safety uh, piece of this, the public safety is, uh, is what is central to so many of these tests. And listen, we have to, we're not allowing NASCAR high performance race cars on our streets and in the hands of, you know, on the highways and town roads and the hands of untrained or irresponsible or unsuitable people because of a, the public safety risk is unacceptable. So we well, need to keep up with the technology. As you pointed out, I mean, the, the preamble to the Constitution, which establishes why we're doing why we're adopting a constitution talks about providing for the common defense, but it also has the phrase ensuring domestic tranquility. And what happened in Lewiston was anything but domestic tranquility. And that's really what we're trying to focus on here and something, as you say, that is constitutional and that will be effective and, and, and make a difference. And so that's the work that we're after. And we're, as you say, it is a different approach than has been uh, handled uh, in, in the past. And and uh, we're hoping we've got some Republican senators who are taking a close look at the bill. This is such a difficult and partisan and political issue, but uh, we're hoping that uh, this is one that that is going to is going to make a difference. Will it pass tomorrow? No. But my experience around here is that you never know when the time will be right uh, for a particular idea, and uh, we want to be there when this is uh, when when the country and the Congress is ready to to take a step. Uh, and again, it's not, it's not restricting, uh, constitutional rights. It's, it's, uh, it's not taking anybody's gun away. Uh, people can still own the ones, the, these things that they already own. Uh, but, uh, we do have a buyback program, uh, to try to gradually get some of these uh, weapons off the street. But it's, uh, it's something that we, we, we think is realistic. And from a law enforcement point of view, I think what I hear you saying is that uh, you think this is a worthwhile project. I do. And I can say that uh, from a law enforcement point of view unequivocally. I know that the International Association of Chiefs of Police has taken a formal position on the importance of uh, managing uh, high capacity firearms and that uh, that level of technology. And I invite you to take a look at that at the IACP.org. Uh, but furthermore, we mentioned the Constitution, the preamble. And just, Every one of those victims of mass shootings in Lewiston and in this country also had the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if we make our decisions based on emotion rather than evidence, then we are doing a disservice to our responsibility to public safety. So I do feel very strongly about this now after 40 years behind a badge and seeing the evolution of society and of technology and of change. And we in Law, as law, you as lawmakers and we as uh, law enforcers are slow to evolve with the pace of technology, but we have a duty to protect. And I think this is a responsible uh, uh, initiative that uh, deserves a full and fair uh, hearing and consideration. Hopefully, will gain the traction and support that it deserves. Well, the, of course, the tragedy in Lewiston is is always in, in our minds. But uh, this year, Noel, there have been over six hundred shootings in America involving the deaths or wounding of more than four people. Mm. That's, that's, that's about two a day, almost two a day. And it's just, as you say, it, those people are losing their rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And um, hopefully this is a direction that we can, uh, that we can move. But Martin Heinrich and I worked on this bill. We've been working on it for about three years. 
because it's it's very technical, as you've seen, as you looked at it, we've been working with experts on how to structure it. The, the irony is that Lewiston occurred within two weeks of when we were preparing to introduce the bill. So Lewiston, people said, well, are you doing this because of Lewiston? And the answer is no, this was long in long preparation. However, uh, Lewiston really strengthened my resolve. I mean, it, if it underlined the, the necessity of, of, of taking this step uh, so that we don't have another tragedy in Maine or uh, elsewhere in the country. My wife and I, our family, were hosting an exchange student from Italy. And when he arrived, actually his mother was concerned about his safety coming to the United States because of school shootings. When he arrived in September, he asked me, will I be safe? I assured him he would be. He's in the safest state in the country. And he asked, why are so many mass shootings occurring involving so many victims, including school children and, and innocent bystanders and churches and child? He knew. He knew the churches in Charleston, South Carolina. He knows that Columbine isn't a attractive wildflower. And he knew about Virginia Tech and didn't think about a really terrific football program. He was thinking other Ter terrified, fearful thoughts. And it really is quite a reflection on our culture and our country to the rest of the world that we have this, uh, this pain visited upon our communities and our families. And it continues to snowball rather than diminish. And we need to unify our approach. And really it's an all hands priority that that many mass shootings, Angus, over 600, it's an epidemic. I'm not overstating it. We feel it as parents, we feel it as law enforcement officers, and I hope the listeners will agree that what we need to do is uh, unify on this. Well, we and there are things we can do, and the bill that we're proposing, I think, is one of them, without compromising the rights of the thousands of Maine people who are responsible gun owners, uh, including people in my family, and 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 not uh, not compromise that, not compromise the Second Amendment, but to try to focus on these extraordinarily dangerous weapons. Uh, that, by the way, are illegal for hunting in Maine. You can't have a, a rifle. You can't hunt deer in Maine with anything more than six bullets in the in the weapon, mm. uh, in the firearm. And so, uh, I think what we're trying to do is steer a line here that focuses on the most dangerous of these weapons, why they're so dangerous, at the same time respect the, the constitutional rights of our law-abiding citizens. And that's that's the that's that's the the spot that we're we're trying to steer toward. Noel, thank you so much for for joining us, and thank you for your long career in in public service and in law enforcement. It really is public service, and uh, I look forward to, to seeing you along the way as we have we we've met up under many different circumstances. And uh, thank you for your contribution today, but also particularly for the work that you do uh, at the university, but also the work you've done throughout your career here in Maine. Well, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this discussion, uh, Senator. It's, it is a privilege to serve the public, and I just want everyone to remain safe, enjoy the holidays, and uh, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll see some success together in the coming year for community safety. Thank you. Thanks. Noel March and Mark Kelly, thank you both for joining me today on Inside Maine. This is Angus King. Important topic this month, and we'll see you again.